Welcome to Heard at Heritage. Heard at Heritage features cutting-edge analysis and thought from leading experts in and across the conservative movement, as well as premier events and programming from the Heritage Foundation here in the heart of Washington, D.C., brought straight to you. Hello, and welcome back to the Power Hour, the Heritage Foundation Center for Energy, Climate, and Environments podcast. I'm your host, Jack Spencer. I'm joined today by my colleague and co-host, Travis Fisher. We're also joined today by another Heritage colleague, Rachel Wilfong. Now, before we go any further, I have a bit of an announcement to make. For this podcast to be successful, we want to hear from you. We want to know how we can improve. So let us have it. We want to know what you think we should be talking about. So to help us communicate with each other, we're setting up an email account for this show. Now, Travis, can you guess what this email account is called, the email address? I would guess it's got the name in it, and it ends at heritage.org. That's pretty good. It is, in fact, the power hour at heritage.org. So jot that down, everyone, the power hour at heritage.org. If you like what we're doing, tell us. If you don't like what we're doing, Tell us if you have a subject that you want us to cover. Tell us that, too. So now moving on. Uh, Rachel, you've been at Heritage for a while now, haven't you? I have five years. Five years. I was just going to ask how long it's been. It's been five years. Yep. Um, What do you do here? I work alongside these two gentlemen uh, in the Center for Energy, Climate and Environment here at Heritage. And I primarily work on natural gas issues at the moment, but willing to do to do anything, really, as needed. Including participating in this here podcast. Absolutely. All right. Well, if you do a good job, and if you're willing, we'll be inviting you back for future episodes, maybe as a regular uh, part of the cast. A girl can dream. All right. (laughs) Travis, how are you today? I'm doing great, Jack. How are you doing? All right. I'm all right. Now, are you fired up for another episode of the Power Hour? So fired up. You could say I'm full of energy. (laughs) Full of energy. Well, you should be, and here's why. Not only are you wearing your co-host hat today, but you're also a guest. I'm excited about that. You should be. Um, Travis recently co-authored an article with our heritage colleague, Kevin Dyeratna, about an energy boondoggle unfolding in New Jersey. Now, we're not going to get quite into it yet, but to give you a little tease, the article is about a major energy policy uh, activity project uh, going on and unfolding in New Jersey, and it is it is a bit of a boondoggle. So we are going to talk about some research that you all did on that. But first, we need to meet our other guest today, the aforementioned Kevin Dyeratna. Welcome, Kevin. Thank you for having me, Jack. Great to have you here. Um, so Kevin's the Heritage Foundation's chief statistician, data scientist, and senior research fellow. Uh, Kevin, I have to say that is quite the fancy title that you have there. What in the world does a chief statistician and data scientist do? Thank you, Jack. Yes, I work on statistical modeling on all sorts of policy issues, uh, ranging from uh, energy policy, climate policy, climate modeling, I should say, um, tax modeling, uh, social security modeling, uh, criminal justice reform modeling, election integrity modeling. So a lot of nice, interesting, and important data-driven questions on the boundary of public policy and statistics, and uh, that's what I spend my time doing here. You don't, by chance, do, like, um, daily sports betting modeling, do you? I did a little bit of that in graduate <laughs> school, actually. <laughs> well, I have uh, some papers. They're, they're available online on that. Can I, can I use that to make some cash? <laughs> you can certainly try. 
Not that I'm advocating uh, sports betting. I should have talked to Kevin before I did my bracket. It's absolutely <laughs> destroyed. I think I had Virginia playing Kansas in the final, and uh, so that's impossible now. So, Well, as a Maryland Terps fan, I find that following the Lady Terps is a far more fulfilling uh, proposition than the uh, the other Terps, which since 2003, I think that's when they won the title. I think anyway, that's, that's correct, yeah. It's the year I got married. I was in Vegas. I got married in Vegas the same at the same time that Maryland won that championship. It was a good weekend. Um, how do you? But that's not what we're here to talk about. We're here to talk about energy policy. Um, Kevin, how do you do your work? Like, like what are some of the tools you use? Just give us some insight into that. So, at the Heritage Foundation Center for Data Analysis, in terms of energy and climate modeling, we have a variety of models. We have the Heritage Energy Model, which is a derivative of the Department of Energy's National Energy Modeling System which allows us to score the economic impact of various energy policies. For example, say carbon-based regulations. What would be the long-term economic impact of that for uh, the entire economy, as well as you know, generating more micro-level estimates, such as the impact in terms of income for a family of four, or how household electricity prices would change. We uh, often juxtapose this with our climate simulator model, which is also a government model, the model for the assessment of greenhouse gas-induced climate change, which enables us to score the climate impact of various policies. That is, if many of these policies are either geared toward um, combating climate change or there are concerns about them exacerbating climate change, we use this model to actually quantify that, what the climate impact would be um, through uh, the middle of this century as well as the end of this century. And there are a variety of other models too, but in terms of energy and climate policy, uh, those are two of the main ones. So it sounds like you look at really complex issues, things that have really multivariable um, elements to it and help policymakers to better understand how these complex systems work. Is that kind of what, what it is you do? Absolutely, especially in terms of this. Uh, from, the, from an economic perspective, there's so many things that go into um, understanding the, the, how the economy will evolve as a result of a policy. Um, because, you know, as much as many people don't seem to realize, unfortunately, energy is the fundamental building block of society, so that manifests itself everywhere in terms of, for example, how different businesses can hire, uh, how our electricity bills hit us, um, how things in the, within the supply chain will end up. Um, and then on the same, in the same token, the climate side, for example, uh, there's, the climate change is a complex phenomenon with so many different variables going into it, and it's important to f understand what the final result will be and what uh, acceptable range of these results will be given this vast uncertainty in the number of variables going into the picture. So you, what you've done, what we're here to talk about today is this, this article that you and Travis wrote. So you bring to bear some of those um, tools to a more micro-analysis in this case. Is, is that fair? Uh, absolutely. No, that is correct. Let's talk about that. I have in front of me the article that, uh, that instigated this podcast today. The, the, let me read the title. New Jersey's $8,000 per resident wind energy scheme won't reduce climate change. So um, that doesn't sound awesome. Travis, let's, let's go to you. Uh, give us sort of an overview of, of, of what you all wrote in this article, what you found. 
So the starting point is Governor Phil Murphy and his plan to build 11,000 megawatts of offshore wind in the state of New Jersey. And I believe that's by 2040. It's a tight time frame. And that's a lot of energy. I mean, so we, we did the math just on a, a very basic level because we can get sidetracked quickly with like power purchase agreement prices and how that's all what's baked into that. The, the easiest thing, the most um, tangible thing to count is just the construction cost. So the, there's just the upfront construction cost of that much offshore wind at the EIA estimates comes out to about $75 billion. So we're talking about a really big, some would call it investment, some would call it boondoggle. And in fact, when I looked up- Wait, who would call it an investment? um, I believe the governor himself would call it an investment. (laughs) Is he investing his money? See, that's the thing about this type of investment. Um, Because to me, an investment is like I have my money and I'm investing it in order to do something. Whenever you're doing other people's money, that's just spending, isn't it? Jack, now you're now you're getting into the weeds. You're making the governor look bad now. I, <laughs> I'm not making the governor look bad. Right. I think his policy is the thing that makes him look bad. And it, so I looked up boondoggle because I was I was curious what the actual dictionary definition is, and I think it fits perfectly. So the noun version of boondoggle: work or activity that is wasteful or pointless, but gives the appearance of having value. So of course, if you're spending seventy-five billion dollars on a thing. That's a lot of activity, and it seems like that might be valuable if you're willing to spend $75 billion on it. But as you point out, that's not his money. He's, I think, what's going to happen to most of this, and this is this is where it gets a little nuanced. Some of it is going to get covered by federal taxpayers through various investment tax credits, things like that. Some of it is going to go to the New Jersey ratepayer. So we just did the math based on if New Jersey had to pay for it itself. In fact, what's going to happen is everybody is going to pay for it a little bit because of the way the federal tax credits work. Yeah, that's a boondoggle. I, th- I think um, where I might quibble a little bit with it being a boondoggle, at least based on your definition, is that it has the appearance of having some value. I don't know, Rachel, what do you think? Do you, to, to, to you, is there any value in appearance? There's no wrong answer, whatever, you know. I mean, to me, no. <laughs> um, I think maybe... Travis or or Kevin, if you want to jump in here and talk a little bit about exactly the value here of of wind energy. I mean, is it this push towards renewables? I mean, the whole premise here is that this this generation that's going to come from these offshore wind farms is going to be exponential. Um, So can you talk a little bit about that appearance? I can take I can answer the energy part of that. And so the the backdrop here, too, is that the state of New Jersey is supposed to be in an organized market. As we talked about on the last episode, it's part of PJM. It's supposed to be an organized wholesale market. So anytime you have a state or especially a governor through executive action just saying, hey, I want this type of resource to be built, you're already going outside the market context. So there's a conflict there. So ideally, if you're in a market setting, just go with what the market is telling you to build. And that's not at all what's happening here. The other thing is we end up building redundant systems. We end up building a lot of intermittent resource, and then they need to be backed up by a firm resource. So you basically build two different sets of generation. And so that's why I would call it either inefficient or, I don't know, wasteful, I guess. Yeah, I would say wasteful just because what else could you do with that money? There's a huge opportunity cost in spending $75 billion on wind. You could buy a lot with $75 billion, Jack. You, I could. 
um, for sure. Kevin, the, the article's chock full of all kinds of numbers. Um, can you talk us through some of the, the numerical details of what you all did? Absolutely, Jack. So what we did was we looked at the climate impact of, of this policy because almost all of these policies are predicated on curbing climate change. So and they're all uh, the, the they're all predicated on the on the assumption that climate change is is serious, it's imminent, and we must do something about it immediately. So what we did was okay, we we decided to model what would be the climate impact at the end of the century as a result of adapting this policy. And obviously, it's difficult to quantify how much carbon dioxide would be avert carbon dioxide emissions would be averted as a result of this policy. So we decided to take the the perspective of eliminating CO2 from all electricity from the state of New Jersey completely. And we quantified the climate impact by putting that into the climate simulator model that I was discussing earlier in the podcast. And assuming New Jersey eliminates all CO2 emissions from its electricity sector completely, we would and assuming an overly sensitive climate to, to CO2 emissions, we found that the policy would curb climate change by less than 0. 0.0007 degrees Celsius, which is, again, slim to none. Um, so this policy would, if those, if people think that this is going to curb climate change, it's not going to happen. And that costs New Jersey residents 8000 bucks. Yes. I, Travis has uh, computed that side of the equation, but yes. Yeah, eight thousand yeah, residents. Yeah, if you take the seventy-five billion, yeah, and you divide by the population of Jersey, that that's the that's the figure you get. Doesn't sound like like a great deal. So the bottom um, line is, this fails the test of cost-benefit analysis because you are essentially charging all these New Jerseyans all this money, and you're not getting any climate impact whatsoever. And I think the only thing that was missing, Kevin, was the year. So we we did two different years in terms of the change in degrees Celsius by Correct. 2050 and by 2100. So it was actually 0. 0.0003 degrees Celsius by 2050, and the 0.0007 degrees Celsius was 2100. That's well, I mean, yeah. now that you put it that way, I guess it's not that bad. <laughs> no. Um, hey, Kevin, let me ask you this. You've, you've done a lot of work in this area, and I, I don't expect you to have, like, a number, but... Like how many windmills would we have to build to uh, to save us from global warming if you uh, oh that's a great if you bought if you bought the alarmists scare tactics that's a great question Jack so let's put it this way you have zero point zero 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 seven degrees no more than zero point zero 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 seven degrees Celsius temperature reduction as a result of this policy in New Jersey if you completely eliminated CO two emissions from fossil fuels in the United States completely you'd have less than 0 0.02 degrees Celsius. So I don't know offhand how many windmills you would need, but you would need a whole ton of windmills, and even then, you still wouldn't meaningfully curb climate change. Here's, here's a different way to see that answer, because I, I, it's, it's knowable. I don't think it's doable. So you think about how much energy the world needs, which is a growing figure that, you know, the estimates vary, but I've seen things like we need a doubling by about 2050. So at the same time, we're supposed to be hitting net zero, that's when we need to have twice as much energy as we have now. So not only do we need to replace everything we have now, but we need to build twice that. And uh, that's just a staggering amount that I, I can't imagine wind being up to the task. I can't imagine people tolerating the amount of wind turbines that that's going to take to build. So it doesn't seem like it helps CO2 stuff. Um, 
certainly there are high upfront costs. There must be something else that make people keep going down this road. Like, what is driving it? Are there savings in the in the long term? You know, will will people in New Jersey ultimately achieve savings? Do you want the kind of cynical view, or do you want the all the way cynical view? I want the truth. So all the way cynical. Good, good. Um, here's my take. So the the kind of cynical is well, it's a nice thing to say that you're doing. It's nice to have goals. It's nice to be green. The politics of green is still pretty good. I mean, I, I have to concede that. You know, when when folks are polled, you know, do you like green energy? They say yes. It changes the poll a little bit when you say, well, how much are you willing to pay for green energy? And then it's usually like, I don't know, about a dollar a month, maybe five bucks a month. Like, well, that's not what it costs. As we showed, it was $8,000 per resident. So a lot of people would reject that. But on its face, it's a nice thing. It's a, you know, you can put out a glossy report that says I'm doing all this stuff. The hyper cynical view is that there's a financial interest and that this is really something dark that the companies involved here, because it's a matter of, you know, handshake deals with specific companies for these offshore wind plots and then the, the prices are astronomical. I mean, that's that's where I would tend to go. I think it's worth at least investigating because mm-hmm. there's a lot of money changing hands here. Kevin, you've looked at a lot of numbers over the years. What I mean, is is that sort of year where you come down like these 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 green, so-called green energy projects just don't pay themselves off, and that that's why they require mandates and subsidies, or, or is that not the case? Sort yeah, I mean, I firstly, yes, this these types of renewable forms of energy, they're just not there yet to manage without subsidies, and that's why um, they continue to pursue them. But moreover, and I completely agree with what Travis was saying, but moreover, all of these policies, all of the, this pursuit of green energy is predicated on the assumption that you know climate change is um, is just right around the corner. It's uh, it's serious, and the sky is going to fall down. And there's no doubt that the climate is changing. But the question is, you know, to what degree? You know, no pun intended. And how will these changes unfold over the course of the coming decades and the rest of the century? Bottom line is, it's important to be wealthy rather than impoverish our societies to combat anything that'll come our way, whether or not it's climate change. And all of these policies are predicated on this alarmist narrative that the sky is falling down and the sky is falling down right now. Are there any environmental benefits to this project, to offshore wind in general, or or is it all environmental harm? I mean, you know, just from some a non-expert point of view, there certainly seems to be, you know, they're, they're ugly. They don't enhance the landscape um, from what you're telling us and 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 what i think i know is that they're costly um but you also see things like and i I wonder if either of you know any anything about this like how um they kill lots of birds there's controversy about whales um just different different things like that like are are those true are those things we should be concerned about is is it actually environmentally harmful like i've heard about like Lots of oil being, um, you know, leaking from these things. Uh, what are your thoughts on that? Fake news, Jack. Fake news. These things are great. Now, so let's let's take a steel man approach because I I like to do that where you you're not just tearing down the worst arguments. You're you're actually tearing down the best ones. The probably the best argument for wind in general or offshore wind is that it's an energy saving resource, 
and note they're they're talking about energy and not capacity. It's not going to replace your gas plant, but it can reduce the amount of time that the gas plant runs and save fuel and therefore save CO2 emissions. So there is a CO2 reducing element to them. And, you know, they, uh, they like to put in context, like the, the amount of birds that get killed. It's a staggering number. The amount of bats staggering has all sorts of impacts, but then they put it in context and they say, well, how many birds fly into buildings? And, you know, that's, that's one way to see it. And it does actually put it in context. The, the thing that, that really bugs me, especially about onshore wind, cause we, we have a lot of data now, there are a lot of, uh, apex predator raptors that are getting basically sliced in half by wind turbines. That's the part where I'm like, I don't, I don't feel special affection for a bat, you know, but when it comes to say bald eagle or a golden eagle, that's just a different story. So the, the wildlife impacts onshore, very well known. I think offshore is a relatively new thing for the U S we might look to Europe as to impacts there, but yeah, I mean, these bodies of whales and dolphins that keep washing up, like somebody's going to have to answer for that. I don't have the answer yet, but it's, it's a, again, it's worth exploring because this is all new stuff. And if it's, if it's supposed to be this pro-environment thing and it's killing whales, I mean, somebody has to answer that question. What, what are the Jersey residents saying about this? Because they're, you know, going to feel the impact of this financially, obviously, but is there any backlash from the community? I mean, what are the, the people in Jersey saying about it? Do you want me to take that, Kevin? Uh, yeah, I mean, so the bottom line is, I think nobody wants their bills to go up, and people are, are not going to tolerate this going forward. But anyway, go ahead, Travis. Yeah, I think so. The folks, and there was a uh, there was a, a a public hearing, and folks were most mad. I think about the view shed, and so some of these projects. So there's the ocean wind, there's Atlantic shores. I think some of them are, you know, and and we lose sight of the of the scale of these things. So we're talking like. Eiffel Tower height wind turbines. So this isn't some like small device that you can't see. This is a towering thing and hundreds of them. And within, you know, nine or 10 miles of the shore. And some people are complaining that they think they're going to be visible and that therefore it could impact the tourism industry. It could impact their own property values and things like that. So I think the most you know, the most direct impact for a lot of people, especially the most immediate one, because the cost sometimes takes time to roll into rates over years. The thing that they are most upset about up front is, hey, this is going to change the way the beach looks. And that's just a very personal thing for them. You know, one of the things I think that's most, it, it's hard for me to get my head around um, from a policy standpoint, is that, you know, I am pro people doing with their private property what they want to do. So someone wants to put a Eiffel Tower sized windmill on their property and pay for it. If it interferes with someone else's view, you know, I'm not completely sympathetic to that from a that I don't think that that view should be protected from a policy standpoint. If, if that's so important to you, then you should have bought that land um, to put it simply. Um, uh, so, so anyway, that it makes me hard to accept those as reasons not to do something because then you create this dynamic where um, if I want to do something on my private land with my private money that someone can come along and say, well, you're going to ruin the, the view and you, you thought that ruining the view was a good reason not to do the offshore wind. Therefore, why is that not a good reason for you not to do the thing on your private property? And because and where the difference is, is that these things are all mandated by government. They are subsidized by government. They are not 
someone using, um, not someone expressing their right to private property, their right to make, to actually invest their their money into something. Um, so whatever these things are, these reasons not to, to build the offshore wind, all gets resolved to me if you just get the government out of the way. So if if these folks want to build offshore wind, and if and and if as a matter of policy it is legal to lease offshore wind areas, which I'm not saying it should or shouldn't be, but if you can legal if that's available for offshore wind development, and you pay the money, then I think that that that's fine. But what I believe would be the case is that none of these things would happen because it wouldn't be worth it. And so as we think through um, energy policies, especially things like this, um, we always need to come back to like, what's the role of government in this? And I think this is another example of that. I thought this was, is this the part of the show where you talk about privatizing the oceans? (laughs) I think I might be on board, but I think that's a, that might be a separate topic because a lot of this requires the types of permitting that you think, you know, it'd be really hard to do this if it were anything else other than offshore wind. Right. You're like, I want to build hundreds of Eiffel Tower sized, you know, offshore oil rigs. I mean, you'd get all sorts of pushback and the permitting process would be all all bound up there too. So, I mean, I, I think it's a, it's always, Jack, it's always valid when people have feelings, okay? <laughs> so the New Jersey residents have strong feelings about this and I think we should honor that. I agree. Um, we sh- certainly should. And we should also stop subsidizing these types right. of things. I agree. Uh, both things can happen at the same time. Um, the podcast that you're talking about is my uh, dark web one called Energy <laughs> Anarchy, which, uh, no, there's no such podcast. Um, I want to shift gears now a little bit. And Travis, you touched on this. I want to zoom out. Um, if this whole thing was a one-off boondoggle, then fine. You know, I mean, it would stink for New Jersey. But basically, it would be what it what it is. But it would be isolated. Um, but what we are literally seeing before us a systemic breakdown of our energy systems because of bad, or I might even say stupid, um, energy policies. And perhaps there's no place where this is more evident than New England. How does this fit into that? And sort of talk us through. And Kevin, I'm interested in your and the work that you've done in looking sort of at a macro level with the modeling you've done and the research you've done of how different energy policies impact um, impact outcomes. So, Travis, we'll start with you to put it in the, the New England context, and then we'll pull out even further and get Kevin's perspective. Okay. Well, the offshore wind phenomenon is a New England phenomenon so far. I mean, with the small exception of a pilot project in Virginia, you have vineyard wind in Massachusetts, you have Block Island in Rhode Island, uh, that's, it's basically all happening in New England. And I think to some extent, it makes sense. They have very high energy prices. They're still using a lot of oil to generate electricity, which is not a thing in the rest of the U.S. Uh, so the, the context here is that there, there is a concentration of offshore wind in New England. But I will say, just to zoom out even a bit more, the problem of state mandates for energy resources across the board. Right now, I think we're still sitting at something like 29 states plus DC have some type of mandate. So that's the majority. So it's not like it's, you know, a a New England progressive thing that that's the only thing that's, they're the only region doing it. Uh, It's, it's all over the place. 
And Kevin, from your perspective, tell us a little bit about the work that you've done in terms of how bad energy policy um, impacts, you know, outcomes in terms of, uh, you know, income, energy prices, and how that might impact or how that might translate into New England. I know you haven't done like a New England specific study, but just talk us through the economics of how um, how things like like subsidies and, and different interventions actually play out in real life. Absolutely, Jack. So the bottom line is, you know, we have modeled these policies at the Heritage Foundation Center for Data Analysis, both the economic impact and the climate impact, namely what we've seen lawmakers uh, attempt to pursue, and this is a manifestation of that, is essentially a form of carbon-based regulation where you are the government is pushing alternative forms of energy uh, to discourage the use of CO2-intensive forms of energy in, in terms of combating climate change. And what happens is, when these policies are not ready yet, you, f you raise this fundamental building block of society and you make it more expensive, and this gets manifested in all sorts of things, like you're talking about income and so forth. So we found, for example, that Based on time and time again, these policies, they just fail the test of cost-benefit analysis. And they not only fail the test, they fail it miserably. For example, uh, the Biden administration's policy proposals to curb climate change via you know, similar types of approaches where they're actively discouraging the use of CO2 emissions, either via taxation or regulation, you find that the policies will stifle the American economy by nearly $8 trillion over the next 20 years, amounting to a loss of income of over $80,000 per family of four, raising household electricity prices significantly, and again, not meaningfully curbing climate change. I think our latest estimates in the Heritage Foundation Center for Data Analysis indicated that the policies would curb climate change by less than 0.2 degrees Celsius by the end of the century. So, hey, Kevin, let, I, let me, I hate to just interrupt you, please. but... Did you? How much did you say that was going to cost? Eighty-seven thousand dollars for a family of four sitting around on the kitchen table over a twenty-year time horizon. Eighty-seven thousand dollars. Yes. So that is more. And how much climate change do I get for that? Less than 0.2 degrees Celsius te temperature. Does, yes, is that going and, back to your? your and I will emphasize, Travis. Jack, less than 0.2 degrees. This is assuming an overly sensitive climate. That's assuming you buy into the climate alarmist. Uh, model. You, 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 it's not only assuming you buy into the climate alarmist model, it's assuming you, you are the most alarmist of the alarmists because it takes the upper end of the IPCC's climate sensitivity into account and assumes that is what the truth is. Is that a boondoggle, Rachel? Sounds like a boondoggle to me, Jack. That's a boondoggle, Travis. I was going to say, I'm a family of five now. I, I, don't, I don't have $87,000 to spend on climate change. You know, no, 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 Travis, you're missing the point. It's not that you do or don't have $87,000 to spend on climate change. It's that they're going to take $87,000 from you in the name of climate change and give you absolutely nothing. Even if I said, do me a favor and double it, I'll pay double, then you get still nothing in terms yeah, of climate. Still yeah, get, I know. Do we have that right, Kevin? Oh, absolutely. And the, the, the most disturbing thing is you could think about this in, in, in the larger perspective you have things, anybody who has young kids thinks about saving for college. The prices of, you know, university tuition keep increasing, and this is, you know, a good chunk of money that you could save toward that goal, but the government wants to take it away to curb climate change by less than 0.2 degrees Celsius. It's not cool at all. Where, uh, so to speak. Um, Kevin, where, uh, where can we find the work you've done on this? 
this stuff is published on the Heritage Foundation website. Um, you can uh, scope the Heritage Foundation Center for Data Analysis page where we have uh, scored costs and benefits, not just of policies like this, but um, other types of energy-related policies such as taking advantage of our vast oil and gas supply. What are the costs and benefits there? And there you see the impact is quite different. And um, also on my Heritage Foundation webpage, and you can follow me on Twitter at KDD0211. Can we put all that stuff in the show notes so the folks know where to get it, Kevin? Absolutely. I'm happy to send it. Yes. All right. We'll make sure we get that done. Um, so bringing to a close this New Jersey um, issue, is it a done deal, guys? Or, or like sort of where does it stand if people um, are concerned about it, you know, what can be done? Can anything be done? And so I, as you might imagine, Jack, I have feelings about this. I have thoughts. Um, so it's an executive order. It's an executive action. It's a, you know, it's the governor's plan. The governor could just change his mind. Can you imagine I, if all you had to do is change your mind and you could save $75 billion? I have to interrupt you now. <laughs> I didn't catch this before. So all of this that we're talking about is because the governor decided it's not democratic. Well, it wasn't democratically. I guess one could say technically it was they elected the governor and the governor may have said he was going to do this. But this is by virtue of the governor just deciding to do so this. To be clear, he does have the backing of the state house and he does have the New Jersey Board of Public Utilities signing off on all of this stuff. So there's a state regulation element of it, too. But the, does the, do the utilities get made whole in this process? So. I, I can't imagine a world in which the governor says, I want this much offshore wind. The utility goes and buys it. And then the Board of Public Utilities says, oh, actually, we're not going to allow you to include that in rates. So you see this across the board with the RPS, so the Renewable Portfolio Standards. The, the utility is basically saying, don't throw me in that briar patch. Oh, please don't make me spend all this money. And I'm going to have to re recover it in rates. You see that across the board. So, I mean, uh, my sense, although it's still open to debate, and I'd like to see boards of public utilities, you know, PUCs, the, the, the state regulators step up occasionally and say, look, this, this is not prudent at all, and our job is to judge what's prudent, and this is not. Great case in Virginia, the state house passed the bill that said we, we have to do this offshore wind thing. The state corporation commission, which is the state regulator there, basically said, we would never under any circumstance approve this, but it's in statute, so we have to. Uh, I'd like to see more of that type of honesty. So, so. But the governor could just change his mind. He could just change his mind. All right. Well, so then, that's, I guess that's an optimistic. Is there any, is there any um, indication that he would, or is his, are his heels dug in? Any ideas? So here's my guess. If the, if the political fights become more public, because they already had the meeting in, I think it was in Ocean City. I'm not sure that they, they have these public meetings where people come and say, this is a terrible idea. Please, governor, don't do this. The more people show up to those and make noise, I, I mean, it, it becomes a political albatross that he won't want to wear around anymore. I, that That's my hunch. That's the only way this is going to change. All right. Rachel, do you have anything else on on this particular issue before we move on to our good, bad, and ugly segment? I don't think so. I think they covered it all. I'm excited to hear what the good, bad, and the ugly right. here, Travis. Kevin, for, do you have anything else on the um, on the wind issue? 
No, I just want to emphasize that um, these policies, people really need to think about the costs and benefits of these policies. And I, quite frankly, I think lawmakers tend to hide behind, uh, you know, saying what the temperature mitigation is because they know it's not going to be meaningful. So they just try to discuss CO2 emissions and combating CO2 emissions and talk about curbing, you know, so many tons of CO2 emissions, thinking that people are going to believe that it's meaningful. And um, they fail to go the step further. But, you know, we do that for them at the Center for Data Analysis. Well, Kevin and Travis, thank you so much for your good work on this. It's a great article. It's succinct, gives great information. Um, we need more of, of, of that kind of thing entered into the public, uh, public policy debate. Now, Kevin, um, don't leave yet because okay. though we are done the, um, the analytical segment, we do a sort of quick fire segment um, to finish out the, the power hour where Travis will lead us through a discussion of the, the good, the bad, and the ugly of energy policy this week. And we need you to, to chime in on that. Sure. So, Travis, over to you. All right. I need everybody to imagine that I'm Clint Eastwood and that I'm in a spaghetti western. And this is, that's the setting here for the good, the bad, the ugly. The good for this week, I want to talk about the Willow Project because there was some uncertainty as to whether that was going to be approved. And it was approved. And then there's the back and forth between, I believe, the ConocoPhillips folks were saying, well, if you only approve two pads, we're pulling out. So you can't say you approve two and take credit for it. So they approved three and the thing is going to move forward, it seems like. That, I think, almost precisely because so many people got upset about it from the environmental left, I'm thinking, well, thank God we finally got a sensible policy here. It's it's a very minor win, and it was sort of wrapped up in this um, Arctic ban. So it's not it's not a categorical, you know, huge win in the Arctic, but it's an approved project and we can drill for oil finally. So I say that's good. Yeah. Um, it def I, I would argue it's definitely good, but I don't think it is instructive of future decisions. Um, that's one of the things that, that I worry about is that Joe Biden, after literally running on a platform of putting gas, oil and coal out of business, um, and then um, and then getting the impact of that with higher gas and oil prices, putting us in a a hugely um, vulnerable vulnerable position as we had the the energy spikes that resulted from you know, Putin's invasion of of uh, Ukraine and coming out of COVID, just really painful for everyone. And for him now to be able to come out and say, "Oh no, it's all good. It's cool. I did the Willow thing." So I, th I agree with you, it's good, without question. But I don't think that it's easy. To, I, I think we need to be careful not to all of a sudden be like, no, Biden's cool on energy now. Not that you were saying that, but I think he and his administration could frame it that way. I think they're going to have to frame it that way in the election cycle. I think they're going to have to say, well, look, you know, I'm a sensible guy. I approved a fossil fuel project. I'm not, you know— I'm not the ideologue that was the guy in the campaign the last time promising to a girl. He pulled her aside and said, I'm going to end fossil fuels. You can't. He promised her. You can't say, oh, yeah, it was a promise. So you can't do that and then pretend that that part didn't happen. I think we know where he stands. But I, I, I do think, that, you know, maybe the, the small win here was in the process of the regulation itself that he was sort of bound to this. Mm -hmm. I mean, it was a decades-long 
project. And so it, it got to the point where he basically could not help but approve it. And I think that that's that's kind of a win, too. Yeah. All right. All right. Rachel, Kevin, do you guys have any thoughts on Willow being a good or do you disagree? No, I think um, that it's obviously useful to take advantage of our vast shale oil and gas supply here in the States. Um, from the climate perspective, we've also modeled, as well as the, the economic perspective, we've also modeled that. In terms of the Willow Project specifically, we haven't modeled that, but we have noticed, and we also have a paper on the Heritage Foundation website on this, if we take advantage of our vast shale oil and gas supply by significantly increasing the amount of supply, the supply of the oil and gas available in the economy by making things like drilling easier um, to engage in, we find that, you know, although uh, climate change alarmists will say that this is going to significantly exacerbate climate change, we find that the impact would be less than 0.1 degrees Celsius temperature increase by the end of the century, which is, again, slim to none. There's not going to be any, any meaningful impact. And that's, again, assuming an overly sensitive climate. So this, the, the Willow Project here, is not going to meaningfully uh, exacerbate climate change as much as, uh, you know, activists would like to, would like to claim. Yeah, same here. I mean, keeping it within the proper context, I think it's it's great, but understanding that the administration is doing plenty of other anti-conventional fuel moves, taking taking other stances there. So just keeping that in the back pocket, I guess. <laughs> what do you got for the bad? The bad this week, I want to talk about the Biden veto. So this was his first veto, which, you know, folks want to put that in context and say, well, look, look how many fewer things he's vetoed than everybody else. So that's true. I, I think the it's telling, though, that this was one of the first bipartisan things that he could have signed. And let's let's talk about the the content of it, because th this is a, this is an important point. So what he vetoed was a Congressional Review Act. It was a, a law that basically put the a, a Department of Labor rule was was going to say Congress doesn't want you to implement that. Um, so he vetoed that. And what what was behind that? It was an ESG thing, so this environmental social governance thing. The The rule was essentially saying that if you're a fiduciary, you're looking at retirement accounts and things like that, you can take into account things other than pecuniary concerns. So you can look outside of money, you can look at climate and all these other things. The fascinating thing with this one is the way that it was spun. So there were a lot of people spinning and saying, well, if you're free market, you should allow investors to look at whatever they want. And, you know, if you do climate investing right, that's going to make you more money in the long run. And the problem with that is just basic logic. The problem with that is if you're saying you can only look at pecuniary interests, if you can only look at the money, and you're saying that looking at climate helps you earn more money in the long run, um, there's no conflict. There's literally no conflict. So the thing that Biden vetoed was essentially, uh, you know, a, a marker that, hey, this thing doesn't make sense. It's not a free market move. Uh, so it, it's it was just very fascinating that that was the way that it was characterized to us, because really it was, you know, the folks in Congress, I think, who voted to uh, put down the, the rule was I think they were basically coming from this place where, look, we don't want this woke infection getting into investment, especially not our own retirement accounts. So it was it was a it was an anti-woke vote. 
and Biden vetoed it. So as we said before, I mean, he's, his true colors are coming out. He wants to veto the anti-woke thing. So he's woke. Yeah. I mean, anyone who thinks that this would have done anything other than push us towards prioritizing um, ESG variables in making investment decisions as a matter of law is crazy. That's exactly what it was going to do. And it would undermine the retirements of millions of Americans across the country. It would have undermined the strength of our business, of every, not, maybe not every, of businesses, of our business sector across the country. It's absolutely insane uh, to suggest that this would not have put what frankly should drive our investment decisions, making money, um, would have would have uh, put that at a much lower um, on a much lower rung than things that have nothing to do with making money, unless they do. Like you were saying, look, there's nothing that prevents someone from you know looking at whatever they want to. But this would have pushed us towards prioritizing things that have nothing to do with making money, and actually would be detrimental to making money as. Um, the, the focus of so much, so much of what people depend on in retirement and building wealth and all of those sorts of things. So that, that's all exactly right. And the, the, the reaction is telling all the people that, so when Congress passed the bill, all the people that were pearl clutching, like, come on guys, <laughs> that's first of all, don't act surprised because this is exactly where, this is exactly where Trump was. I mean, the, the, the rule before that was you can only look at the financial interest. You can't look at all this other ESG stuff. And so, I mean, it, it's, I'm glad it it went where it did. I'm, um, you know, it's obviously bad that the president vetoed it, but I think it, it gives us a sense of where most of everybody else is versus where the president is on this. Mm -hmm. So here's my concern. If that was the bad, I'm concerned about the ugly. Right. Well, this is a, this is a more of a big picture ugly. And again, maybe this is maybe we should reverse the order because we're ending on the worst note. But there was the IPCC report that came out. Oh my God! Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, and so I haven't read the whole thing so far. All four thousand pages. So far, <laughs> so far, I'm digesting a lot of the figures, which are interesting, and you know, the graphic design and the sort of the framing and the imagery is is one of the most fascinating things about this. They had one where it was basically. Well, if a child was born in 2020, how much heating, global heating, is that child going to experience? And then they had the actual, you know, the figure of the person. And, of course, the top line is the most emissions and most heat. So it ends up being like it gives, you know, the person born in 2020 a giant purple head. You're, you're, cooking, <laughs> you're cooking their head. Can you imagine what you're doing, Jack, if you, if you allow emissions to increase now? You're taking a baby born in 2020, and you are cooking their head. The whole thing is outrageous. Um, the way it's presented, the surety with which they present their so-called findings, um, the way they look down their noses as they gave their press conference, which I took an hour and a half out of my day and watched from beginning to end. You know, these, these bureaucrats, these UN bureaucrats from all over the world just – they are the epitome of um, of established establishment special interests who care nothing about the people who make this world actually turn. 
um, you know, sitting up there and say, we're on thin ice and it's melting quick. I mean, shut up. Just so shut up. We've, so the, the echo chamber is, is loud at this point. So you have Al Gore at the World Economic Forum saying, this is what's boiling our oceans. Fil- uh, you mean fact, filthy rich Al Gore? Fact check. Fil- filthy rich Al Gore, I don't believe, I mean, maybe where there's volcanic activity. That's the only place where the oceans are actually boiling. Right. Uh, so it's that kind of rhetoric, though. This is the climate alarmism. And Biden did it, too, in his interview with Cal Penn. I don't know if you saw that, where he basically said, this generation is damned. He's condemning this new generation. So I let's spend this positively. Let's try to be optimistic about this. Let's take some of the same people, and I would include Paul Ehrlich on his population bomb stuff, still getting time on uh, 60 Minutes for some reason. Guy's been wrong for decades. All of the alarmists have been wrong all the entire time. So, you know, you have to take the alarmist view now with a grain of salt. And in fact, the people who were wrong in a demonstrable way. So you go back to when, I don't know, Carter was saying, you know, how much solar we were going to have by the year 2000. Like, okay, well, we have, we're past the year 2000. We can see what happened. Same thing on the climate front. The things Al Gore was saying early on, provably false now. Uh, I believe Greta is taking down tweets from 2018 saying you're so funny. (laughs) You're going to be dead in five years. Like, well, Greta, uh, that was 2018. It's 2023 now. So five years later, let me see. Just doing some quick math. I'm still alive. Things are fine. So take the climate alarmism with a grain of salt. But I think that's why it's ugly is because it's always been it's always been too much. And it's just there's I don't know if they know when to stop. And I'm curious to see how. They reframe things going forward. If the catastrophe never happens, how do you start to talk about it? How do you? Well, they're not going to reframe it, man. You know what? Can I actually add to that, actually? Sure. In 2004, uh, President George W. Bush was briefed in the Pentagon saying that climate change would uh, be so bad that Europe would be plunged into anarchy, Britain would be underwater, and plunged into some sort of Siberian climate because of everything that's going on. Uh, as a result, there would be potentially a nuclear threat to defend, you know, dwindling food, water, and energy supplies. And he was told in 2004 this would happen by 2020. So all this doom and gloom, in the past it's been proven to be wrong time and time again. And what's so frustrating is these people at the IPCC, they never learn. Or they just don't care. Yeah, they, I mean, they that, either don't, so, they never learn or they don't care. Yeah, you're right. So... That's why I say that they won't reframe it. They will just keep saying the same thing. Here's I'm gonna I, I will bring an air of optimism to this report. I don't think anyone cared in the past, um, as we led up to you know the different um, global warming conferences and as these reports came out, the media was you know awash in different analyses and whatever about it. And this time, yeah, you had the odd story here and there. But it was no one cared. I think that they are losing credibility. Um, I don't know, Rachel, what do you think? I mean, I agree. And a little shameless plug here in our center's newsletter. We have a biweekly newsletter. We had a graphic this week kind of talking about these targets um, over the past years where uh, policymakers wanted to be and the projections for the share of renewables that, that we were going to have. And it's it's. Maybe unsurprisingly, we're not even near reaching those targets. Um, and I mean, that's that's just the the energy share here. It's not even about the 
the actual state of of climate. But I mean, just across the board, it's it's all just a pipe dream. And as as Jack always likes to say, you got to commit to the bit. So I think at this point, um, they've just kind of perpetuated this narrative for so long that I, I think in their eyes, it's kind of like, well, got to commit to the bit. <laughs> they are committed to the bit. That's a good way to, uh, to to frame it for sure. So Travis, despite your best efforts to leave us on a pessimistic uh, <laughs> note, we indefatigable. Uh, so, but thank you for that. Those were good, good, bads, and uglies. Now, before we sign off, we have just a little bit of housekeeping. I said last time we'd be releasing new episodes every other week. Well, we discussed it and decided that um, no one ever changed the world two weeks at a time. So we're going to be releasing weekly episodes. Uh, I believe on Thursdays. That's not confirmed yet. I know our, our first one was was released on a Thursday. I think we're going to be doing Thursdays, but I'll keep everyone updated on that. Second, I know last week I promised that our next episode was going to be on nuclear power. Then we did this episode. Now, I can't apologize for that because I think you'll agree this episode was awesome. But now I can say for sure with absolute confidence that our next episode will be on nuclear power and it will be explosive. I promise. <laughs> Sorry. I shouldn't say it as a, as a guy who loves nuclear power. I know better than to ever relate explosions with commercial nuclear power because one has nothing to do with the other. With that all said, I want to give everyone a heartfelt thanks for taking some time to spend, your, uh, spend an hour listening to the Power Hour. And please, if you enjoyed the podcast, as usual, tell your friends, family, and colleagues to check it out. And if you didn't like us, please tell your enemies. Either way, just tell someone. Travis, Rachel, Kevin, any final words? Well, I just want to put in another plug for the the email that we have for folks to send in ideas or critique. If or you would wait like for that. me, I have the email uh, coming. Man. I can't read upside down, Jack. I'm sorry. Right, go ahead. Plug the email. The Power Hour at Heritage.org. Please email us with thoughts. And you know, even if you have, let's say, questions, you want us to explore a topic, send, send it in. Absolutely, we'll talk about it. So, with that. We'll give you the last word, Travis. Again, Kevin, Travis, Rachel, thank you so much, and we will see you all next time.